We do thank you again, and um, we can't thank you enough for choosing to save us in this way, to raise your son from the dead, that we don't have to be afraid of death, that he is the first fruits of our resurrection. And Lord, I just pray that you would help that to be um, a little bit more clear and a little bit more real through your word uh, this morning for us. Lord, I just uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a story once, fancy that, of a Texas oil tycoon, billionaire in the industry, who had a daughter who was coming to age to be married. And he knew that there were a whole slew of eligible bachelors that were interested in wooing his daughter and his fear was that it was all about his riches that they wanted to get their hands on um, this inheritance that she would receive and so this oil tycoon devised a plan and what he did was he invited all of the eligible young men that were interested in marrying his daughter and he gathered him into uh, to his home in the backyard around the pool and he had them all stand on one side of the pool and he said men it's simple as this it's a race the first one of you that can swim across this pool and get to this side where my I and my daughter are standing win the hand of my daughter and pulling the pool cover back revealed a pool with several alligators swimming around in it he says I figure that it's only true love that would cause a man to risk his life and swim across this pool in order to win the hand of my daughter and so before he had even finished explaining it there was a splash at one end of the pool and all that couldn't even see if that it was a person it was just flailing water across the pool to get to the other side panicked stricken swimming for his life this young man and he gets to the other side miraculously pops up out of the pool um, and lands on his feet just standing there breathing heavy eyes huge just staring at the man and the man the the tycoon comes over to him shakes his hand and he says son I'm impressed it's obvious to me as I said that only true love would drive a man to risk his life in this way to win the hand of my daughter you can indeed have her hand in the inheritance that comes with it and the, the man the young man is just still standing there panting breathing heavily eyes huge stuff like this and it turns into a glare looking at the man and the man the tycoon looks at him and says what more can you ask for than what I'm offering you and the young man looks at him and says I want to know who pushed me in Well, I want to tell you this morning, Jesus is not our accidental Savior. Jesus on the plan of God the Father, God the Son who He is, and God the Holy Spirit chose to come and live the life that would be eligible to be a sinless life, a sinless sacrifice for us, chose to die on the cross 
for our sins, paying the penalty of the sins of all mankind, having all the sins of mankind and all the wrath of God that those sins deserve poured upon him, died in our place, and rose from the grave. On Resurrection Sunday, I'm making use of some pictures this morning because we have the kids in with us. On Resurrection Sunday, the stone of the tomb was rolled away. The fear and disaster of a dead Messiah turned into victory, but confusion. And more than, more than people even could have dreamed of at that moment. Some women who loved and followed Jesus as their Lord came to the temple and found it empty. Two of those women, one, I'm sorry, one of those women told, went and told two of P- Jesus' disciples, Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, and they ran to the tomb as well and found it empty and walked away in disbelief. Two followers of Jesus left for their home to a town called Emmaus. And Jesus traveled with them, but they were kept from knowing who he was until they sat down to eat. Before they knew that he was the resurrected Lord, he explained that their Messiah had to die. And he explained it from all of the Old Testament scriptures, from the law and from the prophets. These, these two followers of, of Jesus, when, when they realized it was him, and he disappeared from their sight, they rushed back to Jerusalem to tell the other 11 disciples. When the two from Emmaus joined up with the disciples, they heard about other sightings. They heard about Mary Magdalene seeing him in the garden. They heard about the other women seeing him in the garden. They heard that he had appeared to Peter. The excitement of those who had seen Jesus and the questions of the others were building into the tension of wonder. And then, there in that room, as Luke 24 36 through 49 says, says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they'd seen, they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch them and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were in disbelief for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and and ate before them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And everything written about me in the law of Moses... And the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, now this is why, just stepping away from this, this is why as you read through, say, the book of John, he'll talk about something that Jesus did, and he'll talk about he was talking about his, the fact that he would rise from the dead, and he would say, but we didn't understand this until after it happened. That's because in Luke 24, verse 45, it says that at that moment, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer 
and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, he says. And behold, I am sending the promise of of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with the power on on high from on high. That that promise of the Father from the Father is the Holy Spirit that would come on the day of Pentecost. Just weeks later. So we're looking this morning on a journey from doubt to trusting in Christ. And we'll be looking at the transformation of Jesus' disciple named Thomas. The passage that we're looking at, which, which Luke 24 leads up to, is in John 20, verses 24 through 29. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them but when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. I saw a little, as I was researching this, I saw a little cartoon that had one... uh, obviously disciple looking person you know from first century talking to another and and he says I don't get it Peter's not called um, uh, denying Peter you know and and Judas isn't called betraying Jesus how do I get stuck with doubting Thomas and the other just says you know what Thomas you just need to move on but we start this morning with the idea of starting with doubt We have this tendency to think that the disciples were going about life as normal during this time. But recall, they were not in their hometown. These were Galileans in Jerusalem. They were there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which which tagged on to the end of Passover. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long celebration from Sunday to Sunday, keeping all the eligible men there in Jerusalem. They were hanging around Jerusalem, taking a part in the feast of the activities involved in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the subject of their conversations would have been these appearances of the resurrected Christ. We read that the other disciples told Thomas about seeing the Lord. The tense that is used in this verb is interesting. It describes describes them as continually telling Thomas we've seen him why won't you believe us we've seen him what what do you think today Thomas it's Tuesday it's Wednesday it's Friday Thomas what do you think we've seen him so as they were involved in the activities of this feast they're trying to convince him of this 
Now, I think it's important here to be fair to Thomas as well. The disciples didn't originally believe the people that, they first, that had first seen Jesus or first seen the empty tomb. The disciples doubted the testimony of Mary Magdalene. Mark 16, verses 10 through 11 says, She went and told those who had been with him, as, as they mourned and wept, still mourning on Sunday, over the death of Christ. It says, But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. The disciples didn't believe the women who reported that angels at the tomb had seen Jesus risen. Luke 24, 9-11 says, And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and, all, and to all the rest. But these words seemed to them, in verse 11, an idle tale. Seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The disciples doubted the testimony of the two from Emmaus, even who walked with Jesus before recognizing him. In Mark 16, 12 through 13, it says, After these things he appeared to, in another form to two of them, and they were walking in, as they were walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So Thomas gets a bad rap here. The news that Jesus had risen from the dead was pretty unbelievable. Even by those who had been told by him, it would happen. So it's understandable that Thomas doubted the testimony of the other disciples. Honestly, it's understandable that people doubt it today. We also tend to give Thomas a hard time because he wanted to see and touch Jesus' scars. But Jesus knew that his followers would wonder if he had bodily risen from the dead. It comes up again and again. I'm not a ghost. Jesus basically saying. He told them as he appeared to them in the room. On that resurrection Sunday. He said in Luke 24, 39 through 43. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. As you see that I have. And when he said this. He showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, ate it before them. I picture kind of, you know, in the movies or something, if, as somebody's watching someone thinking, I can't believe he's eating that. And the person just sits there staring at him going, <coughs> You know, and they're looking at the fish. Yep, it's gone. Okay, you know. Jesus understood that the first thought would be, they'll think I'm a spirit. And Thomas even, reasoning that his most unique wound would be what? The spear in the side. I don't just want to see just anybody with scars in their hands. I want to see the spear I want to see where the spear went into his side. Think of the disciples' hope in Jesus like being a basketball team, putting their hope in their star player, if you will. I know, I know that brings it down way a notch here, but I mean, 
like, like Zeller for the Hoosiers. Or, or like LeBron James for the Cavaliers. Or, or like Michael Jordan was for the Chicago Bulls. Think of this player making his team a team of destiny. All right, every game leading to the championship is a blowout. Even just on the sole effort of that one player. It all comes down to the final game of the season. And the whole team has every confidence that they will take home the championship after their dream season. I actually started writing this illustration before this past week's IU game. But it's anything like they expected this game, this championship game. At some point in the game, it's obvious that the refs are in on a devious plan. Also written before this past week's game. The star player of this team is beaten about the court without putting up a defense. The end result is that he's taken out of the arena on a stretcher. The opposing team is simply allowed to run up the score without any regard for the rules. The rest of the game is like the cheating team just playing arcade pop a shot. While the team of destiny watches in disbelief and in horror. What would the next few days be like for them and their teammates? They would be wondering what in the world had come to, the world had come to, if they missed, had they missed the signs that, of them being set up in some way for this game. Jesus' followers felt as if their whole life and livelihood had been placed on Jesus being the Messiah. They were devastated. They were trying to make sense of it. For three days, they'd been in hiding from the opposition who they assumed would be seeking their lives, trumping up some charge that they had stolen the body somehow, paying off the guards to say that this actually happened. All of Jesus' followers started a journey of doubt. Thomas was in that funk for 10 days after Jesus' death. Even though the others were trying to tell him that Jesus had risen, he was too distraught to believe them. Doubts plague people today about the person. Doubts about the person and work of Jesus. One of the most common ones is just that it seems too easy. How could the God of the universe want to adopt me as his child and not expect me to do anything to earn it? How can the God who made me simply call me to put my total trust in the person and work of Christ? And that's it. We're so, we are so used to proving ourselves or earning a place at the table. But God simply calls us to trust Him, believe on the one that He sent, and receive the work that He has done for us. we see that it, it started with doubt. But we see that just as the other disciples were, Thomas was compelled to trust. We read eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my side. 
and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The idea of eight days later means it would have been the following Sunday that Jesus, the following the Sunday that Jesus appeared without Thomas, now Thomas is with them on that following Sunday and he appears to Thomas. On our church calendar, I don't know why we don't have a Thomas Sunday, a Palm Sunday, Resurrection. We should have a Thomas one, I guess. Doubter Sunday, maybe. It would have been at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It would have been like, okay, time to go back to Galilee. Even though the doors are locked, out of fear, Jesus appears in the room and speaks peace to them. Notice that Jesus tells him, tells Thomas to do exactly what Thomas had said he needed to do in order to believe. Jesus was showing that he was more than a man once again, knowing Thomas' words. Or maybe he was even present with them when Thomas spoke them before. We don't know that Thomas took Jesus up on what he offered. But we do know that Thomas believed the Christ had truly risen from the dead. The disciples continued to trust in Christ. And this, in this, their continued trust in this and their holding to this is one of the proofs of the resurrection. The historical fact is that all of Jesus' closest disciples died because of their belief in the resurrection of Christ. Except for John, who had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos after he was attempted to be killed by boiling, being boiled in oil, which didn't kill him. So in that state, he gets exiled to the Isle of Patmos. We can trust that Jesus' followers did not steal the body because people don't die for a lie. People won't die for a lie. And a group of liars can never keep their story straight, especially when death is on the line. Someone cracks. Jesus' followers took the truth of his death and his resurrection and made it the goal of their lives to tell others about it. And 2,000 years later, he remains the only person whose life history pivoted our history from B.C. to A.D. Let's keep with the disciples' experiences being like this championship basketball game. It'd be like the game coming to an end with the hero removed and the teammates' dreams crushed. And just as the celebrating of the cheating team and the crooked refs begins to quiet down, something happens. Someone points to the scoreboard and everyone watches as the points move from one side to the other. Eventually, the celebrating team is left with a big goose egg in their spot. And all the points are on the side of the team of destiny. Not just that, but the trophy disappears from their hands. And it's in the hands of the star player who's now somehow standing tall in the middle of the court. The team stares at one another and all their hopes and staring at the one that all their hopes have been based on. And they realize they were part of something bigger than they had ever dreamed. Have the pieces of the puzzle come together for you? 
Have you come to realize that Jesus was not just a great teacher or an example of selfless sacrifice? Do you realize that Jesus' death and resurrection was the whole purpose of his coming to earth? I hope that today you see Jesus as God himself on special mission to save those who would trust in him for salvation. With Jesus standing before him, offering his hands inside, Thomas makes his, a statement of faith that summarizes and blows away what everyone else has claimed. We see this in his trusting in Christ as Lord and God. He says, my Lord and my God. This statement by Thomas is is a bigger statement about Jesus than any others leading up to it. He He was declaring that he is the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Using the same combination, Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And the fact is, is that one day, Every single person will stand before this Jesus, this Lord and God, who is worthy of all glory and all power, and they're either going to be giving him the glory for having received him as their Savior and setting them free from the penalty of sin, or they will be regretting not having done that. Everyone will fall into one of those two camps. Thomas's realization brought so many things to a climax from his experience. He's thinking, everything I've seen this man do is what my God would do. My Lord and friend, Jesus, is my God. He wants to walk in a personal relationship with me. I'm sure that his mind and the mind of the other disciples continue to be blown by what this meant. When Jesus told the man, your sins are forgiven, after he was lowered from the roof on his bed, and and the rulers said, no one can forgive sins but God alone. Duh! When Jesus said, before Abraham was... I am, that's because my Lord Jesus has always existed. Their minds are just blowing. Jesus told us that he would die and rise in three days, they think. My God died for me as a part of his plan to pay for my sins that I committed against him. D.A. Carson says it's a staggering to contemplate it's staggering to contemplate the god of the bible becoming a man it is even more staggering to contemplate him as he dies our death and is vindicated in resurrection yes yes no lesser words of acclamation will do he writes my lord and my god the confession is scandalous the confession is glorious 
This belief in Christ as God is part of what proves the resurrection as historical fact. The fact that is that these appearances after Jesus and his resurrection changed the way that people thought of him. In the year 110 AD, a Roman governor named Pliny the Younger complained to the Roman emperor Trajan about Christians. He says that he cannot get them to follow the Roman law and worship the emperor no matter what he tries. In his own words, he explains this way. They are, un- they are accustomed to meet on a fixed day before daylight and sing a hymn of praise to Christ as God. He also explains that they, they worship Christ as God and, and he says, and, and this is his quote, it has spread not only to the cities but in the villages and rural districts as well. All of this was despite Pliny the Younger's policy of executing Christians who would not stop worshiping Christ alone as God. Thomas's response reflected how all of Jesus' followers responded to his resurrection. You know, as I said, made-up stories don't hold up especially when they involve the penalty of death and especially when they involve a lot of people. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read just before the service, he says that that Christ died and that he was buried and then on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and he appeared to, to the 12 and he appeared to Cephas being Peter and he appeared to 500 at one time. And he says, some of whom are alive today which Paul wrote about. Now, if you don't know much about the external biographical tests of a historical document, um, the, the period of time that an account is written about being closer to the actual event is, is very valuable, that period of time. And for Paul to say he appeared to 500, some of whom are alive today, historically speaking, is, is rock solid. Because what can someone do? Go find one of those 500. See if their stories match up. But that's just one small aspect of the tests of a historical document that, as I've said before, are reset to a new level from the Bible to the point that there's more concrete evidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ than the existence of Julius Caesar. More historical concrete evidence and the resurrection of Jesus Christ than the existence of Julius Caesar. It reminds me of the the professor that was given an exam and these four students living in an apartment or a house um, overslept their exam in this class. And so as they're driving there, they're thinking, okay, we've got to think up a story. We've got to think up a story. They're like, flat tire, perfect. This is the day before cell phones. They're like, no problem. We get there, we all just let them know we had a flat tire. I, you know, what can we do? even knowing that they had just overslept. So they get there, the professor's like, I see, I understand, no problem. 
okay, you know what? I'll just give you guys your tests separately and, um, you know, not a problem. And, and he gives them the papers. He's like, oh, by the way, I want you all to be in separate rooms. So he puts them in four separate rooms, gives them their tests. They're like sitting down and they take their tests and they sit down at the ta- desk and they're like, okay, looks like, whew. Look at it and it says, which tire? See, that's what happens when you incorporate a lot of people into a lie. Jesus appeared to 500 at one time. And the best that a naturalist can do, someone that doesn't believe in the supernatural, is to say it was a 500-person hallucination. Honestly, that's on the books. Within weeks, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaiming Christ throughout the city. They, they're standing before the Jewish rulers and telling them, this Jesus whom you crucified is Lord and King. If the rulers could produce the dead body of Jesus, they would have. Believe me, 3,000 people coming to Christ at one time on the day of Pentecost? No one argues that Jesus was still in the tomb. Nobody takes that up. It's a historical fact that the tomb was empty and that no one could produce the body no matter how motivated they would have been to do it. So in keeping with our basketball analogy here, Jesus being God would be like his team now watching the scoreboard in amazement. Seeing the points for their team continue to go up. And they're like, we didn't score that many points. Right? They realized that every basket that had ever been scored or ever would be scored is now going up on that board. It means they're standing there at the center of the court, standing there holding the trophy, is the source of every achievement. He's the reason why the game is played or is able to be played. He's the strength in everyone's effort. He's the joy in every win, the reason for longing in every loss. He's the purpose of it all. He's the meaning behind the whole game, is what they realize. And that's what it is for life itself. Jesus is the reason why life is lived. He's the strength behind everyone's effort. He's the joy behind every success. He's the longing the reason for longing behind every loss. He's the purpose of it all. He's the meaning behind it. That's what the statement, my Lord and my God, meant and means today. I wonder if you realize just who it is that we're celebrating this morning. Do you stand in awe of who he is? If not, I don't think you fully understand just who this Jesus is that we're celebrating. Jesus Christ is the purpose and reason for life. And Jesus talks about us in his next statement to Thomas. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We are blessed. As 1 Peter 1.8 puts it, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy.
that is inexpressible and filled with glory. As we want to know more about who Jesus is as Lord and God, it should fill us with joy and celebration. He's risen from the dead, having paid the penalty of sin by his death, and we can all know him as our Lord and as our God if we will place our faith in him alone, our total trust in his person and work for our salvation. I would bet that if you're here this morning and you've never done that, you know someone here who would be willing to help you. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much again for this plan. Jesus, thank you so much for your willingness to follow through. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would have a ministry in our heart of leading us to your throne, leading us to a deeper knowledge of just who you are, not, not something deeper than what you've given us in your scriptures, but it's, it's huge what you've told us, that Jesus is Lord and God. And his rising from the dead, Jesus, it proves that. Lord, if anyone here this morning does not know what it means to accept the gift of salvation, of having our sins completely washed away because of what Christ did, I pray, Lord God, that you'd make them clear to them. I pray, Lord God, that you would draw them to ask you for that forgiveness based on what Jesus has done. There's nothing that we can do to deserve it on our own. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.